uh, we now arrive at the heart of the vision that was being brought to Daniel and to Daniel's people and then ultimately to the scriptures and now down to anyone who wants to read them in all ages, including us, uh, the actual vision about what God wanted to communicate to Daniel. So we'll read Daniel uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 1, and uh, we're going to read this morning through verse 20. Daniel chapter 11, we'll read the first 20 verses. These are the words of the uh, angelic messenger to Daniel. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Then the king of the south will grow strong along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. After some years, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in. And the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. And he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he will deal with them and display great strength. Also, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt. And he, on his part, will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away... His heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. 
He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger, nor in battle. Well, is everyone clear on all of that? If you're feeling a little bit confused, uh, don't feel so bad. No doubt Daniel himself, when hearing these things, would not know what this angelic messenger is talking about. Other than the fact of some preliminary matters that were described in verse 2 with regard to Persia and Greece, after that it would have gotten for him a little bit fuzzy. And in reality it would have remained that way until sometime later when all of these things began to be fulfilled. We're talking this morning about a vision that God gave, a revelation that he gave through this angelic messenger, a message about what was going to happen in the future. Now, from our perspective today, much of the vision of Daniel chapter 11 has been fulfilled. In fact, the entire section that I just read describes from our perspective historical events, historical events that have already happened. But from Daniel's perspective, it had barely even begun to happen. In fact, really, uh, none of this had happened. When he says three more kings are going to arise in Persia, there was an existing king at that time, but the events of verse 2 and beyond had not even started yet. What we find in this chapter is really some of the most remarkable information in all of recorded history, and that's You may think that's an overstatement, but I don't think that it is. And it's not because it's the most significant information in and of itself. It's not because these events are the most important events in history or the turning point of human civilization or anything like that. The reason that they're so significant and so remarkable is because in these words, we find a level of precise historical detail that would show a good understanding of history if it had just been written down and summarized after the events took place. But being written before the events took place, this shows a stunning knowledge of the future that could really only be supernatural in origin. And in fact, that is exactly what is here. This chapter in particular is one of the major reasons why certain biblical scholars today, and I I use that term in the general sense, but nonetheless, people who study the Bible, some people who study the Bible, insist that the book of Daniel was written much later than Daniel is said to have lived. Uh, In fact, something like a century or so before Jesus arrived on the earth because from their perspective there is no way that someone could write and describe the events of history this precisely 
unless they had already taken place. Which, of course, is true, except if God is giving the information. If someone who knows the future is giving the information, and if someone who knows it comprehensively is giving the information, and that is exactly what is happening here. This angelic messenger is passing along a message from God about the future. And so this is a remarkable chapter. And therefore, when you look at these words and you say, these might not necessarily have much meaning to me, uh, but if you tell me what they mean, they might have a little bit more meaning. Uh, I would encourage you to realize that this passage itself has a whole lot of significance, even if otherwise, or if we were just reading about some other similar type of activity, we would simply say it's a matter of historical interest or historical curiosity. Here, the precision and the detail in advance of the events happening signifies that God knows what is going on even before it happens, that God is in control of what is going on even as it's happening, and that we have someone that we can trust, that when things are very challenging and uncertain, and even when they look like they're going to be very, very bad in the future, that we know that we have someone that we can rely on and that we know that God is involved in these things and that we can trust him that the ultimate outcome is going to be good because God intends to do good for his people and has promised to do so. Now, much of what takes place here in this chapter, uh, especially in this period, takes place during uh, what we often call the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period, which is just a big word to say between the New Testament and the Old Testament, or between the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you want to put them in the right order. Um, This is called that, the intertestamental period, because no new revelation from God, no new scripture, no new prophetic revelation that we have written down was given after around uh, the late 400s B.C., until the time when the birth of John the Baptist was approaching and was announced to his father Zacharias in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And yet, even though there was no new revelation, no new messages from God during that period, there was a whole lot of biblical prophecy that was being carried out. And so there are a whole lot of events of Scripture that are detailed in Scripture that would happen during that time that are described in the Bible, even if there wasn't a new message coming from God about that. The message had already been given, and much of it is found in this very chapter. So it's not an unimportant period of time. Even if it was, in a certain sense, a quiet time from the perspective of God speaking, it was not unimportant, and God was not out of the picture Instead, he was very much involved and he was working and carrying out his plan even when he wasn't speaking. And this is an important message for us to take away from this as well, which is that God has already given this message to Daniel in the 500s BC. And many of these events are taking place hundreds of years later, over 300 years later, such that Israel could be saying, God, what is going on? What is happening? Will you tell me what's going on in my life? Will you tell me what's going on in this world? Why is there so much conflict? Why are we not back in the land yet? Why are your promises not being fulfilled? And God will point back to a book written hundreds of years ago and say, I've already told you, nothing has changed. You need to just keep trusting me. And we need to do the same thing today. 
in the absence from God speaking and continuing to give additional information, we don't have to look and say, God, you're silent about our circumstances. God, you're quiet about our situation. God, are you really actually working here? Because God is always at work and God is always involved and God is always in control. And God has spoken to us in the past in a way that doesn't change just because a long time has come in between when he spoke and where we are now. So this is a message that tells us about God's involvement, God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness, and our need to rely more and more upon his word in any circumstances that we find, especially if they are difficult. And so we do very well to pay attention here in this chapter for all of these reasons to what God foretold and that which has now come to pass. Now, just a little bit of background and context here. Daniel, again, is in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Persia is uh, basically Medo-Persia, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, but it came simply to be known as the Persian Empire uh, after a very short time. Two years earlier, Cyrus had issued his decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem as promised to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel didn't return to Jerusalem. He remained behind in the Babylonian Empire, now the Medo-Persian or the Persian Empire. But many others did, and they started the work, but they were discouraged and they were stopped from rebuilding the temple uh, by local opponents. Daniel has been mourning and praying for three weeks, very likely about this issue, and the messenger angel has come in response to Daniel's prayer. He has come in response to Daniel's request. The vision, he says, is one of great conflict. And as we'll find in chapter 11, there is, in fact, a lot of conflict going on. And basically what this message itself in chapter 11 is doing is filling in a lot of the details of the very brief promise of Daniel chapter 9. That God would issue this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, but there would be a time, a long time that intervened. And there, there would be a lot of troubles going on during that time. And that it would be uh, the 70 sets of seven weeks, ultimately 490 years specifically involving that nation before God would fulfill all of the promises that he had made. And kind of wrap everything up, all the stuff that he had prophesied. And so what the angelic messenger is telling Daniel is there's going to be a lot of hard times. There's going to be a lot of conquests. A lot of foreign powers, uh, a lot of invasions, anything really that you can think of, all of these things are going to happen. And on top of that, he says the hardest times are going to be a time at the end. Not only at the end of the things before Christ that are spoken about here, but ultimately even the time of the end, which from our perspective today has not yet even come. And so Daniel chapter 11 talks about all of these details. Now, the uh, time span that's covered in verses 2 through 20 of this chapter covers from where Daniel was in the Persian Empire, the Persian Kingdom, um, until right before the rise of Antiochus IV, 
who ruled in 175, starting in 175 BC. So you have around 534 or so BC until around 175 BC, just about 360 years that is covered by the, uh, by the, the verses 2 through 20 here. And just to put that in perspective, that would be like finishing today if you had started back in the year 1664. It's a long time. It feels like a long time, doesn't it? And that's just to take up to when verse 20 will start and a particularly hostile and despicable ruler named Antiochus IV. Uh, so this is a lot of time. There's a lot of time. Sometimes we get involved in hard situations and we say it just feels like so long. It's been six months. It's been two years. And that is long in many ways. And yet here is Daniel being told about something that's going to span the time period that even reaches and exceeds the time that Israel was in captivity in Egypt, in slavery to Egypt, ultimately as it expands well over that 430-year period. It's a time that extends beyond the length of time that our very nation has even existed. These are, this is the kind of thing that spans generations. People are born and die, and their grandchildren are born and die, and this still has not finished. This is a very, very long time. And it helps us to put into perspective just uh, the kind of time frame that God sometimes operates on and that he is operating on when it comes to his kingdom plans and his kingdom purposes. Now, the basic actors in this chapter, we'll talk about uh, in more detail here as we go through it, but you have the kingdom or empire of Persia. Uh, who was the second of the four major kingdoms that Daniel's previous visions described. You remember the visions, perhaps, of the statue and then of the, uh, uh, of the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And so you have the Babylonian Empire, and then you have Medo-Persia, or Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. Well, Persia and Greece, the second and third of those empires, are described here, uh, just as they are described in Daniel chapter 8. Are, those are the two main empires there. Then you'll have Greece being split up into a four-part kingdom, and then there is a focus on two particular parts of that kingdom, the northern part uh, and the southern part. We'll talk about that more as we go through, but you probably noticed that when we got down to verses 5 through 20, the king of the north and the king of the south and the south and the north, and it sounds like somebody's giving a civil war history, but none of the details line up. So here is the main, these are the main characters, and what we're going to find as we go through this text is, is essentially this, that God allowed Israel to be overrun by the rulers and armies of the nations while they waited for their Messiah and their full restoration to come. God allowed Israel to be overrun by the rulers and armies of the nations while they waited for their Messiah and their full restoration to come. And that idea that God allowed this to happen is very important. God permitted this. It doesn't mean that they did this and God was standing on the sidelines, unable to do anything about it. But God had a purpose for this, and God allowed for this, and he knew this in advance. But the whole point is that one day through all of these things, God would send his Messiah and would fulfill all of the promises that he had made to his people and all the blessing that that would bring and involve. So what we're going to look at here, we will call this part Israel in the crossfire. Israel in the crossfire. Uh, and it's a history from Persia right up until right before Antiochus 
the fourth. Israel in the crossfire because Israel is now kind of in the center of everything, but they're just caught up in this web of conflict. All of these people, these rulers, these kingdoms trying to take advantage one over the other, trying to look out for their own interests. And Israel is just there, you know, just saying, yeah, we want our land. We want to do the thing that God promised. We want to have all the stuff that we had before. We want to, uh, to be restored and then uh, have all these promises fulfilled. But right now we're just here in the middle of all of this, just getting overrun and people are coming back and forth. And it's just like, get off our property. Get off of our land. Can you guys go fight somewhere else? But... They couldn't. And in fact, part of this is because God has deliberately set this nation at the center of all these other places. God put Israel there so that they might be a blessing in the midst of the earth. He put them there so that they would be able to be a light to the nations. But having failed to do so because of their rejection of God, their idolatry, their failure to uh, embrace his truth in the way that they should from the heart, he now is putting them back there, but... um, they run into trouble when other people overrun them. So we'll begin by looking at verses 2 through 4, what we'll call foundational events. Foundational events. And uh, here he begins the substance of the vision. He says, now I will tell you the truth. Um, He says, there will be three kings from Persia. He talks first about the kings from Persia. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. In this case, King Zero, we won't count him in the three, is in this verse, or or is in uh, verse one of chapter 10, Cyrus. And then you have three that would follow him. You have uh, Cambyses, you have Pseudo-Smyrtus, and Darius the first. Uh, uh, Histaspis. So these are the ones that would follow. The third of those ruled for uh, from 522 to 486. And then following him is a fourth king. It says here, then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And this fourth king is Xerxes the first, uh, known as in the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus. Now, uh, Egypt and Babylonia revolted against him, but ultimately he triumphed over them. He became very rich and powerful. That's what this verse says. He became strong through his riches, and then he, it says, will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece, which we find happened in 481 BC, where he invaded Greece, he lost his navy. In 480, the army was defeated in 479. They did, for a brief time, conquer the city of Athens, and they destroyed the old Parthenon, and they left a very bitter taste in the mouth of the Greeks, which then began a a, a sort of, not just a sort of, but a a real hostility and bitterness between these two kingdoms that, uh, that would last for over a century, and they really don't like each other. So then... What follows is this next king from a different kingdom, the king from Greece. Verse 3, the king from Greece, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Verse 3, a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Uh, The reign of Alexander the Great began in 336 BC after his father Philip II uh, was assassinated. He was all of 20 years old. In the year 334, he attacked Persia, and he conquered Persia rapidly. In uh, about three and a half years, he took over the whole empire. By the end of 331, he he had taken over the territory, and he was now ruling. And of course, this is a truly 
great in the sense of magnificent and mighty king as described here. Uh, he is widely known even to this very day. You say the phrase uh, Alexander the what, and most people will know even you know, 2,300 years later, Alexander the Great. Uh, however, he died in the year 323 at age 32, and four of his generals took over sections of the empire. This is described for us previously in Daniel chapter 8, if you want to look there. In the vision in Daniel chapter 8, uh, some overlapping events are described in that vision that was given to Daniel, and it's pictured in terms of these animals. Daniel 8, starting in verse 5, excuse me, we'll start in verse 4 as it describes the kingdom of Persia. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. This would be the Persian empire. But then it starts to describe Greece and Alexander in verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. What do you think that describes? Alexander conquers, he's mighty, he takes over, but then he dies not long after. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. This is where we arrive in Daniel 11 verse 4 which will then begin to give us a number of details that are not covered in the account of Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel 8, there's more detail to come about what happens next, starting in verse 9, but that will align with Daniel eleven twenty one and onward, if you're keeping track of that. We'll talk about that more when we get there. Uh, but back in Daniel 11, in verse 4, we find the division of the Greek empire into four parts. The division of the Greek empire into Four parts. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. But it isn't given to his descendants, it says, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. So what happened is that uh, his generals, four of his generals, took over sections of the empire. Uh, Lysimachus, Cassander, uh, Seleucus and Ptolemy uh, the first in those last two Seleucus the first and Ptolemy the first um, the, the last of these two will describe the interactions between the kingdoms that are ruled by these two particular lines of rulers uh, the empire of the Ptolemies of Egypt which would be the south when you see the south here they're based in Egypt and then the empire of the Seleucids, which were based basically in Syria, although there's a broad territory, and we'll see this in just a moment on the map, which will be behind me, and this represents the north. So there will be the south versus the north, although there are two other kingdoms that are not going to be fighting back and forth over the territory of Judah, uh, which would be farther toward the west in what we would actually understand to be Greece and Macedonia. Um, after the initial breakup of 
Alexander's kingdom, these two men, these two rulers were close allies, but eventually there came to be conflict between the two of them. Um, So then you arrive at what we will call north versus south. Now, I want to just give you a picture of what's going on here. There should be a a map that you can look at, I think, coming up behind here. See if we can get that there. So you can see that the green area would be uh, be ruled by the north, the king of the north, the Seleucids. And then in the south, you have the uh, this sort of reddish-orange area, which would be ruled by the, the south, the, uh, the Ptolemies, again, based in Egypt. And these two, you can see, are um, kind of the border of these two is very close to the land of Israel along the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. So you can see where Israel is going to get caught up in the battle between these two kingdoms. And a battle they had, not just one battle, but actually a series of six wars that would take place over the course of a hundred plus years between the two of them. And so here we have north versus south, north versus south in verses 5 through 20. Uh, When you hear these two, you may immediately think of what conflict? Civil War, United States Civil War, the north versus the south is probably the one that most comes to mind for us. But uh, in that case, although certainly there were exceptions, um, people in those days were largely on one side or the other. They chose allegiance to one side. But this north versus south would be a little bit more like if there was a civil war involving all the states north of Tennessee versus all the states south of Tennessee, but they decided to just keep fighting through Tennessee the whole time. And we were, we just wanted them to leave Tennessee alone, you know, just let us have our state, let us have our territory. And so there's a back and forth over a number of uh, territories, which would include and often involve the land of Israel or what is often known as the land of Palestine. And so Israel and its people, Judah in particular, is stuck right in the middle. So let's, again, we'll just note down, first of all, the parties involved. The north, you have the Seleucid Empire, And in the south, the Ptolemaic kingdom. And uh, from these will come, uh, from the south, a series of rulers who would be known as Ptolemy I, the second, the third. Uh, And then from the north, you would have a series of kings that both went by the name Seleucus and uh, Antiochus. And not an exact back and forth or in line one or the other, but uh, a little bit alternating where you have those as the two, the two names of the rulers who would come. And I'll just mention a few specific ones as we go through. Again, these two kingdoms fought a series of six wars over the course of more than 100 years known as the Syrian Wars. And uh, many of the details of these wars are predicted in this section. So we'll look first of all at the preliminary conflicts. The preliminary conflicts, verses 5 through 9, including the rise of these first kings. The rise of the first kings, not the first kings in your Bible, not first kings, second kings, but the first kings of these respective uh, north and south as described here in the conflict between the two of them. Verse 5, then the king of the south uh, will grow strong. This is Ptolemy the first, along with one of his princes. Now, in this case, one of his princes, 
uh, does not refer to his son as we might think of a prince being the son of a king, although that is uh, possible for that to be for uh, a son to fill that role. But in this case, uh, it would refer more to one of his commanders, to Seleucus the first, who had been one of his commanders uh, when they were previously uh, under the reign or following the reign of Alexander and his conquest. So both of these men grew strong and they became various uh, rulers over these territories after Alexander died. But it says that this commander or this prince of his uh, will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. So the one who was underneath him and had been one of his commanders will take power over him. So at first Ptolemy ruled over Seleucus, uh, but then later on he was, Seleucus was awarded a greater kingdom um, after some successful other battles, and he had a more prominent part in some of the uh, assimilation of the kingdom and that larger portion that you saw of territory that ranged really all the way out to the east toward Asia. Uh, this was what he was involved in securing. And so he, was, he became uh, more powerful, and he held the largest territory out of all of these four kingdoms. And it says here, his domain will be a great dominion indeed. So at the end of verse 5, you have, at least as far as the amount of power, the king of the north has the power. You have next uh, a failed marriage alliance. A failed marriage alliance. After some years, verse 6, they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. So uh, two Syrian wars took place and before in the year 253, there was a marriage alliance and the daughter of Ptolemy II, Berenice, would marry the king of the north, Antiochus II. Uh, So she came to do that. Well, that didn't work out too well because it turns out Antiochus actually already had been married. He was now divorced. He had uh, children with his ex-wife and she had been exiled to Ephesus. But when he died, when this king died just a few years later, uh, the former queen was able to get her son to be the new king, claiming that her ex-husband had promised this upon his deathbed. And this whole plot included the murder of this would-be queen from the south, of Bernice from the south, and of her son who would have been the heir. So then you have this failure that's described in verse 6. So the king of the south's uh, daughter tries to get them on even terms, and she may succeed for a time in this initial alliance, but she fails to hold on to this. Then we have the success of the king of the south, verses 7 through 9. The success of the king of the south. And it says, but one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. This would be Ptolemy third, And he will come against their army, which started the third Syrian war. He attacks the north. He learns that his sister and her son have been murdered. And so he has the queen who had done all of this put to death. Uh, It says he will enter the fortress of the king of the north. He finds it largely controlled by those who sympathize with his sister. And uh, it says he will deal with them and display great strength. And so he goes through Syria. He has a successful conquest. And now the south has taken on the north successfully. So the power is shifting. Not only that, it says also verse 8, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold he will take into captivity to Egypt. 
so here there is this conquest and dominion that would be symbolized very often in the ancient world by taking the religious idols of the other nation and actually taking them captive. We see this in, for example, the book of 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines and brought back into the house of their god, Dagon. So uh, here we have an example of that. Uh, But it says that he will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. And it appears that he had to return to Egypt, in fact, to quell an uprising that took place while he was absent. Then the latter will enter the king of the south, but will return to his own land. The north king comes into the southland, but decides to go back. This is recorded uh, by, among perhaps others, the Roman historian Justinus. Then we have a power shift, and the power shifts to the north. And what we find is that there, instead of this initial back and forth, we begin to have events take place that would result in the power being concentrated to the Seleucid kingdom in the north. And uh, what you have here is described in verses 10 through 12 as the initial failure of the north. So it doesn't start so well. Verse 10 uh, his sons, that is the sons of the king, uh, the king of the north, uh, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, will mobilize a multitude, multiply, excuse me, mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. One of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. This is what Antiochus III did. He came to power around 222 BC and initiated the fourth Syrian war, which took place in 219 to 217. Now, just to get kind of step back and put this in historical context, if you're familiar with uh, the war between Carthage and Rome, this would be right at the time when Hannibal was leading his troops over the Alps to come down and to surprise attack Rome from a direction that they didn't expect. All of that is going on over to the west while this is going on in the east. And actually, there would be uh, some uniting go on ultimately between Hannibal and the Seleucids later on. But here we're dealing with Um, events that are more directly in this particular geographic location. So verse 11, the king of the south, which at this point is Ptolemy IV, will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude. And what happened is you have a battle involving over 150,000 men, which the south won, including taking possession of the disputed territory. It says, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. So the king of the south comes and takes vengeance on the king of the north, despite the large army mustered by the king of the north. And victory belongs to the south, to the Ptolemies of Egypt, as of 217. When the multitude is carried away, verse 12, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. And so even though Ptolemy IV had succeeded, he didn't take full advantage to overtake the north completely, and there remained an opportunity for them to come back, which is exactly what happens starting in verse 13. We begin then to see the eventual success of the north, verses 13 to 16. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on and with a great army and much equipment. Antiochus III comes to be known later on as Antiochus the Great, and after several years pass, he has an even bigger military force. In 202, he starts the fifth Syrian war, which lasts until 195. This time, rather than being on defense in his own land, he goes to invade the territory of the south. 
Verse 14, in, in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. Now Ptolemy V, after the fourth died in 204. Uh, unfortunately, he's only six years old when this happens. He's in a very vulnerable position. And it says, the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Now, an interesting and somewhat mysterious note here because he's talking to Daniel, and now you have direct involvement of some of Daniel's people, some of the Jews. And they're doing something here, perhaps trying to look at the vision that God has given to them, given to Daniel, and to try to actually carry out the fulfillment of all of these things that God has made or God has promised will happen. Whatever they're trying to accomplish and whatever specific details of the vision they're trying to fulfill, they won't succeed. And these things continue to go on, the war between the north and the south. Verse 15, then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. And so they can't fend off the northern forces. Antiochus goes through Damascus and then through Judah in 201 BC. In the 200, he wins a battle at what would later be known as Caesarea Philippi. You may have heard of that from the New Testament. And the Ptolemies were done in Judah for good. Um, eventually Antiochus chased the army to Sidon on the coast where he besieged them and eventually forced them to surrender. Verse 16 says, he who comes against him will do as he pleases. That is the king of the north will do what he pleases against the forces of the south. No one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land. That is the land that God has promised this uh, land that was given to Israel is described this way here in verse 16, also verse 41, also in chapter 8, verse 9. Uh, a, just a very picturesque way to describe this land that, even as we heard earlier in Sunday school this morning, it was described as a land of milk and honey, a place that would be desirable to go. And even though it was being invaded and back and forth and used as a battleground during this time, nonetheless, it is for good, the beautiful land it belongs to God, it belongs to his people, and he is helping them remember that even in the midst of this. Well, finally then, you come to the impermanent success of the north, verses 17 to 20. The impermanent success of the north. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, and she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So Ptolemy V, now 16 years old, the daughter, the, the daughter that's described here would be the daughter of Antiochus III, Cleopatra I. And um, one writer at least notes that this was Antiochus' effort to make peace under pressure from the growingly powerful force that is Rome. But it was done with the intent to ruin the southern kingdom. But it doesn't work out. She will not take a stand for him or be on his side. So then, verse 18, he'll turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. That is, along the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, as you saw on the map, on the western coastlines. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. Antiochus went into Greece in 192, and yet he was defeated by Roman forces, which are now there multiple times and he had to backpedal through Asia Minor and then even back out all the way out of there. He was forced to give up quite a bit of territory and had to sign a treaty and as part of this treaty um, he also had to give a number of hostages to Rome including one of his sons who would later be renamed as Antiochus the fourth. 
We will have a lot to learn about him when we get to verse 21. So he'll turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. And we find in 187 BC he was killed in Alimius by locals there. In verse 20, in his place one will arise, Seleucus IV, who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. And history notes he was assassinated in 175 B.C. in connection with trying to impose heavy taxes. After a brief power struggle, the next in line to the throne will be Antiochus IV. We'll have more to say about him next time. But just a few things to note here as we consider all of these details. First of all, the uh, absolute perfect knowledge and control of God over all of history. Uh, Do you think that this is only here in Daniel 11 and these details are only given because that's all that God knows about what would happen in the future? Of course not. There's a very specific purpose that he's given this for, but really all it takes is this for us to know that he knows these things. He hasn't been given a limited window into the future, but he knows them all. And anything he tells us is with the perfect knowledge, not only of what has happened and what is true, but also everything that will ever take place. So when we read God's promises about the future, we can be absolutely sure that they're going to take place and that everything he says will come to pass. We also find here the unfortunate side effects of human power struggles. This is... uh, This is just one example of the many places where people are just caught up in the the fallout of kingdoms seeking power against each other. How many people throughout history have just been the unfortunate or the tragic casualties of people trying to secure for themselves power and fame or influence or authority or riches? The back and forth struggle was fought really for the interests of these kingdoms and these rulers. And here is Israel. And as it is, sometimes you're just caught in the crossfire. You're not suffering because you've done something wrong. You're not participating in any particularly noble cause and being persecuted for that. It's just that this world is full of conflict and you get hit in the process. And that's just going to happen in a world like this sometimes. And it doesn't mean that God is not involved or that he doesn't know exactly what's happening or that he doesn't care. In fact, he's one day going to make all things right. So if you find these things happening to you and you go, what is going on? I didn't do anything. This has nothing to do with me. Um, This is not unique. And yet God is in these things and he cares. And he doesn't think that it's right. These... uh, In fact, there is a a history of nations in these two same places, even though ruled by different entities, where Egypt and Assyria would fight against each other and had been even before Israel was taken into exile. In fact, uh, uh, King uh, Josiah went out and was killed in battle when he tried to get in the way of Assyria and Egypt fighting each other when those empires were still intact in the 600s B.C. But God promises that one day he's even going to change all of this. And in Isaiah 19, he promises that Assyria... And Egypt will come together in the land of Israel not to battle each other and not to make a mess out of that land, but instead to worship the Lord with Israel as the the centering force of all of those, bringing glory to the name of God. And so God's going to take all these nations fighting each other with his people in the crossfire. And one day he's going to use his people to bring a blessing to all of these other peoples instead. 
This is the power that God has and the promise that he has made. And then, of course, we find here as well the impermanent, fleeting success of all human attempts at power. These are some of the most powerful people that the earth has seen. We, the, the Persian Empire, no doubt, uh, Alexander the Great, and then even these lesser powers. They all had it, and they tried to get more, and they just couldn't prevail, and they couldn't hang on. This is what the kingdoms of the earth try to do, but they will all ultimately fall, and they will ultimately one day be supplanted by God and his ruler, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what that ought to do is, on the one hand, humble us and say that we should be aware to not seek after power for ourselves, to not seek out these great things for ourselves, and to try to utilize this world to bring about the best circumstances for us. But at the same time, we can rejoice that one day there will be one who rules over all of these kingdoms. And no longer will the kingdoms of the, of the earth fight against each other, and will they struggle, and will people be caught up as collateral damage in that, but instead... The Lord Jesus Christ will reign. And it's described this way uh, in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. As we, as we close, we'll read these three verses. Isaiah chapter 2. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and, it will, and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Talk about a blessed world to live in. Talk about an amazing uh, governmental structure ruled by the Lord himself through his mediator, the Lord Jesus, turning weapons of war using the materials into weapons of production and blessing and provision. No more wars. An amazing thing we have to look forward to and we can be thankful that God has promised us this and especially so in, in contrast to the con. Uh, the, the conflict in this chapter. So we have much to look forward to and much confidence that we can place in the God who has promised these things. Let's pray together. God, thank you for giving us this insight into what uh, would happen in the future, what has happened now in history, so that we can know you're reliable and all that you still have not yet done still has not happened. We thank you that you are God who will one day bring all conflict to an end, that you will be the victor, and that we who have trusted in Christ uh, overcome and have overcome through the blood of the lamb and are on your side. May we be on your side in our heart in every way. May we, be uh, may we have allegiance and show allegiance to you in every way. And may you be honored and glorified by our lives as we depart from here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.